Hi, this is Jack Flack from Britain, Texas podcast. We just got done finishing episode two. I joined again with my good friend, John McGuinness. We spoke a little bit about dates in the US, went on to talk about where I'm at with my current green card process, and then finished off with everyone's favorite subject, COVID-19. As always, I uh, would love any feedback that you may have. Um, hope you guys enjoy and look forward to seeing you next time. Johnny Mac. Thanks for joining us again, mate. Oh, thanks for having me again. Made ha- the cut. Yeah, I know. Second yeah, yeah. Now. Zach, not so much. How did uh, How did you find the first one? Yeah, I thought it was good. Good conversation on the fl- on the go. Hopefully, informative to someone out there. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe no one. <laughs> yeah, possibly. We'll see. So, some of the feedback I got as, as a whole was very positive. Some of the points that were brought up, uh, a few people told me to sort out my laugh and that was something that I picked up as well. I've got a w- massive witch's cackle. Unfortunately, it's not much I can do about that, but I agree, it's fucking annoying. A few people said I'd lost my South London accent, which is uh, which we touched upon a little bit on, on, on the last episode, but I'll, I'll elaborate. I think it's weird because anyone I speak to in the US especially if it's a British person that's been over here for a few years, still says, I've, I've, I still rem- remain. I, I still have a strong, strong English accent. That being said, I think a lot of my mates that I've grown up with have noticed that my accent's changed a little bit. And I think some of this is done on purpose because I've tried to pronounce my words more and more over the last few years, which doesn't particularly go well with a South London Accents. I think I've probably deliberately come away from it, um, but equally it does feel like a little bit of a dagger when someone says that. For the most part, the the Brits that that gave us feedback was very positive, found it relatable, felt it was good. Uh, a couple of some uh, some constructive criticism was that um, when we're talking about informative stuff, especially with statistics and stuff like that, we should sorry when we talk about informative subjects, we should back it up with some statistics especially when talking about cost of living, salary, stuff like that. So that was um, some constructive criticism there. I'd argue that, though, actually. But now, though, when oh. you look at statistics when before you move over here, mm. and it's got, like, the average income for Plano is, like, 50, 60 grand or whatever. Yeah. If you're on that, it, it's not that easy to live on that amount. 100%. Statistics, I mean, like, you say even just for, I know we're going to talk about this later, but with yeah. visas... Yeah. To sponsor someone's green card, um, the government says that you have to earn enough income to support both people. Yeah. And, and what that, is that, that is $21,000. Yeah. <laughs> There's Quite just no way you're living on $21,000. Um, unless you're living in a tent somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So statistics, I think you're better off actually getting an understanding from people that are living here rather than what the you know what statistics are online? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I agree with that statistics were quite often misleading, right? I think as a whole, they probably, uh, some of the people you mentioned, just given examples of what we felt was a livable wage or, or, or whatever. Um, less American bashing. So this is an interesting one, right? Because there's something about English people collectively that can be fucking miserable, moany fuckers for the most part. When... Let me, let me rephrase it. Something about British people that sometimes when they get together, especially with other Brits that can, can collective like collectively have a moan up. And I think Americans tend to take it fairly personal when we talk about the differences, right? And I think for, as an English person, quite often you don't really mean it offensively in the sense that we live here, right? We chose to live here. We like the way of life for the most part. But there are obviously things that are going to be different. So 
when you get a few British people together, you tend to have a little bit of a moan up. That, I think, comes across as American bashing. I don't think that's how it was meant, but what, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm, I'm fairly conscious of it now. I think uh, I've seen my wife, Kaylin, would say that I do that occasionally as well. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't mean to do it. I don't think anyone means to do it. Uh, I think you're just, you, you're comparing, right? You're making comparisons. Exactly. It's like if you drove a Ford Fusion and you go to a Ford Mustang, you know, you're going to make comparisons. 100%. And uh, it may seem like they're kind of one-sided, but typically, you know, that's, that's just how it is. I mean, I, I try not to do that as much as possible because it sounds kind of negative. Yeah. But then again, I'm sure that if, you know, my wife, Kaylin, spoke to uh, someone else's, you know, wife who's married to a British person, they'll probably complain about the, you know, weird things that British people do. And, yeah. <laughs> and they, they do, do similar. So, it's, again, it's... We're, we're both here at the end of the day, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think when you meet British people quite often, it's, it's good to find common ground and stuff you dislike as well as stuff you, stuff you like. Definitely not American Bastion. We love America, so... Uh, America. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. Um, but yeah, so look, this today's episode, so it's going to be on dating, visas, green cards, and we're going to touch on 90 Day Fiancé. So I want to get into the visa stuff a little bit later, but to tie it in, first of all, I want to talk about what it was like when you first came to America, especially with the dating aspect, right? Because although you would imagine, and we touched on that a little bit in the last, in the last episode, that it's pretty easy to date because it's the same language. There definitely are some cultural differences worth mentioning. There are some, some you know, stuff you have to get around, and that's for, for both, right? For, for both parties, it, yeah. it's, it's easy. So how did you find dating when you first came over it? Well, I thought it was fairly similar. To be honest, I think when you, when you look at it as a whole, most Brits that come over here, and I'm talking specifically about the UK, um, you know, because we come over here on, on e-visas. I know we're going to touch on the visa thing later on. But most of us, I'd say the average age group of people coming over here on e-visas, especially in recruitment, yeah. probably got to be, what, 25 to 35? Something like that. that. So, You've yeah. got to have a bit of experience before they send you out here. Yeah. Um, but typically, they're fairly young. And this most of the time, you're single, right? I mean, I know a few people that have come over with families, but it's not the... I'd say it's maybe 70-30, would you agree with that? Yeah, something like that. I think some people moved. I think if you went to New York, California, maybe a little bit different, but I, w- I would say as a whole, the, the type of people that are going to come over on, on, on E2Vs and stuff yeah. would probably be that kind of age group. It's for obvious reasons, right? It's harder to pick up a whole family and, yeah. and move to the other side of the ocean. It's a lot easier to do that if you're younger and you don't have any kind of tie-downs or anything like that. So... I mean, when I first came over here, I think a lot of people have that idea, and we touched about this in the last one, of it being like American Pie, you know, things going crazy, <laughs> crazy parties and stuff like that, which isn't necessarily the case. And uh, when I came over here, to be honest, I just continued doing what I was doing when I was in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in the UK and I was single in my early 20s, you know, you go on dates, you go yeah. on nights out, you meet people. I don't think I ever came to the US going, oh, do you know what, I'm going to meet a US girl and I'm going to settle down, I'm going to stay here forever. That definitely, and I think yeah. most people's intention 100%. is not that yeah. uh, when they come across. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, right? Because I don't know about you, but I, when I first came over here and the idea that, that I set out was I'm going to come over here for two or three years, probably not going to look to get too bogged down into relationships, going to have some fun, do what you know, young guys in, in their 20s do. Because I never had the, the, the mindset back then that I was going to be here for, forever. So long-term relationships and stuff like that wasn't 
the, the, the immediate goal. That being said, the more you're over here, like anything, right, you end up meeting people, you end up settling down, you end up doing what goes along with that, and then there's a more conscious decision, right? What am I going to do long term? How's this going to work? What's this look like? Do you find... Um, so, so had, had you had... Because you worked in Germany in the army, right? And had you had much experience with Americans as a whole? Had you dated any Americans before? Yeah, so I actually did date Americans before in Germany. So I worked with the American army. So um, I had you know some experience. But again, that's a completely different environment when you talk yeah, about around military bases and stuff like that. It's not yeah. your normal kind of social ecosystem. It's It's a bit weird. It's... It's all a bit yeah, different, a bit really. Yeah. yeah, I don't think my, my dating changed when I when I moved from London to um, to the US. To be honest, it was very similar in that you work all week. You know, you go out for happy hours. You go out on a Friday night. Yeah. You get your friends together, do some pre drinking. You know, go to a nightclub or bar hop or something like that. You know, it was fairly similar. And I know we said this in the last one, but I feel like Brits and Americans they're fairly have. We have quite a bit in common, even yeah, though we're agree, pointing yeah. out the differences. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Typically, we do have quite a bit in common, so it's, I found it harder dating German girls, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's a different subject. I can, I can, uh, I, I can see why. So, do you think? But when you first moved, so, 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 to tell both of our stories, but we both moved to a company. We we joined a company that was based in the suburbs, parts of Dallas, and we lived in an area called Plano, which is a suburban area, right? And I think when I first came over here, my story was that I, my focus was in a new country, don't know too many people, got more, a bit more cash on the hip than I tend to have, let me go out and, and get drunk in local bars and tear up yeah. shops and legacy as yeah. much as possible. End up in Zambuca trying to put a cougar. <laughs> but I, I think as that kind of moved on, when you actually start getting into more serious aspects of dating especially if you join Bumble or, or, or Twitter or um, Tinder even not Twitter did you find any challenges amongst dating from a cultural perspective did you find American girls because we, we said on the last podcast right it's pretty easy if you've got an English accent to, to, to yeah. go on a date right did you find there's any yeah. unusual challenges that you didn't have back I mean, home? Going, going deeper into that the whole accent thing so I think there's a common misconception when it comes to British accents in America. Because I think in the UK, most people think if you've got a British accent, you go to America, all the ladies are going to absolutely love you, you know, because you've got a British accent. I think there's some truth to that and there's, there's, there's a lot of things that, that aren't true to that. It's definitely an element of surface level attraction right? or, or interest yeah. at least yeah. but I think it, you know if you if you look like Quasimodo and uh, <laughs> you've got a British accent uh, you know you, you're still not just going to go out there and you know all the girls are going to love you I think the one good thing about a British accent now I'd say this isn't just about British accents I'd say this is about just you know people from different countries and different regions yeah. as a whole I think there's intrigue there so yeah. you're more likely to speak with someone Agreed, and yeah. spark a conversation even if you're you know, you're talking to some girl or you go up and, you know, they're not interested in you, they have a boyfriend, whatever else, they're more likely to um, actually have a conversation with you purely because they're quite interested about your accent or, you know, where you're from. Yeah. Uh, they're more likely, you're less likely to get instantly rejected. Yeah. That's where, you know, being, having been to university in the UK and 
going up to some girl and being told to fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, it's, cool. it's quite nice when you don't have that instant rejection. Yeah. I think I think British girls are actually quite harsh when it comes to that. Do you I, agree? Or? Yeah, so I, I would say agreed. I, I think there's definitely a surface level of interest. Equally, I would say in Dallas, this is probably more personal than it would be in New York or California or other places that they hear a, a wider variety of accents for obvious reasons, right? Variety is the spice of life for, for, for want of a different expression. So if you hear someone with a different accent, there's just a level of interest, even if you don't like that person or you don't find them attractive. It's just, oh, where are you from? That, that, yeah, that, that, that level of interest that yeah. peaks. And I think that's not just British people, though. I think that's Great, like yeah. if anyone from, you know, if you had a Russian accent and you went there, they'd probably yeah. be like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, why have you got a Russian accent? What are you doing here kind of thing? Just out of curiosity. Especially as, as Texans as a whole are just extremely friendly, forthcoming people, right? So if you go to a bar and play, you know, you've, they're used to just hearing American accents. If you come up, show, sh- sh- rock up with a, a different accent, I think they're going to find it at least worth uh, conversation worthy, right? Yeah, it's like a kind of, you know, it's a door opener for sure, but it's definitely not something that, I have a lot of people used to tell me it was fake all the time, to yeah, be honest, they wouldn't believe it. Or Australian. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, you're from Australia, no, no, I'm not. Yeah. You get South Africa, you get all kinds of different countries, but a lot of them would be like, oh, that's not a real accent, as though there's some just group of guys going around Dallas with fake British accents. Yeah, so apparently this is a thing, so I definitely remember at some point showing girls my English driver's license. Not that I was trying to prove, well, I guess I was trying to prove something at the time, but <laughs> I remember people saying that a lot of Americans, I guess, put on fake British accents to try and uh, get girls, which is an interesting concept. What challenges, though, did you find when you first started dating? Do you think, I agree there was a, a culture thing. One of the things that came up with me, and I don't want to get into the weeds, I do want to do an episode on, on religion at, at a later part of the day, and I don't want to get too, too much in the weeds about it now, but one of the factors I found was that a lot of Americans, especially Texan girls, struggled to comprehend dating someone that wasn't a devout Christian. And I don't mean wasn't religious, but literally very, very actively going to the church. Yeah. Is that something that, that you come up with or, or you come up against? Or? Yeah, I think so. But I, I don't necessarily think that it's a strict religion thing as such. Mm-hmm. I think it's a societal thing. Yeah. I think that there's there's groups around especially around the suburbs especially when you talk about wealthy suburbs like like Plano um, there's groups that are trying to fit into a societal norm there um, where it's like you know you're of a middle upper class socioeconomic status conservative upbringing conservative upbringing you know you go to the church and all of that so you want to marry someone on that same level so that you can have that what society expects you know the white picket fence and you know you see everyone at church on a Sunday and you know, you, you, I think it's more of a societal thing than it is specifically a religious thing. Yeah. Because when you think about religious beliefs, they're deeply personal. I mean, 100%. why would it matter that much? Unless you're with someone, obviously, who's anti your beliefs, which yeah. is a completely different situation. 100%, yeah. What I did find sometimes is that there was a little bit of hypocrisy there yeah. with people that would do <laughs> some of the most sinful things you can think <laughs> of. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but then they'd be like, oh, right, okay, well, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to date you long term because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And it's not normally because of them as a whole, it's normally because of the yeah. society as a whole. Yeah. They're scared of the judgment of society as a whole rather than, than anything else. Yeah, 100%. I, I do think that's a, that's a big factor into... A lot. I, I think 
by nature, right? If you if you've had a conservative upbringing, you want someone to have a, a similar upbringing as you, especially when it comes to you know long term yeah. having kids, meeting your family, and stuff like that. I think that. that's not just religion as well, though. I think that goes that extends even further to, and again, you may have come across this already, but just you know your partner. So when I met Kayla, my wife now. I'm sure that she's had it before where people have said to her, oh, you're dating a foreigner. And yeah. it's almost like, I mean, being British, fortunately, I don't think anyone thinks that we're just here for the green card or whatever because yeah. we come from a very similar... Yeah, exactly, uh, a great country. Yeah. You know, we're, we come from these financially stable countries. We're not disadvantaged in any way. Yeah. You know, it's not like we're... Very much a life choice, the, It's yeah. very much a life choice. But even still, I think some people would be like, oh, you, you know, you're with a, a foreigner who just wants to be in America or something. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's an interesting thing. So I, I definitely want to get on onto this the, the, this subject, but I, I think marriage is, is an interesting thing over here, right? Because tying into the conservative upbringing, I think when I talk to a lot of American friends that have grown up in Texas with you know traditional, religious, conservative family values um, upbringing... I think what happens is quite often they'll meet someone in college, they'll fall in love or whatever, and then when they leave, they probably spend you know a few years with this person, and all of a sudden they move back to their parents from college, and it's like, well, you can't be staying around their parents' house, and equally vice versa. So they end up kind of expediting marriage in a way that I, I get, but I would equally say maybe is not the most natural way for a relationship to progress. I think the average age, well, I, I actually done some, some research on this. So the average age of a person getting married in a, for a girl in Texas is 25. An average age for a guy in Texas is 27. In the UK in comparison, let alone London, it's probably going to be even higher. It's 32 for a woman and 34 for a man. So I think... There's a, there's a lot of factors that, that come into play there, right? What, one thing is disposable income not being as as um, accessible in, in the UK, right? So people generally, when they have 20, 30 grand to spend on wedding, wedding generally they're a little bit later on in life. Equally, the religion thing is more, uh, it's a bigger part for why they get married in the US earlier. Um, but do, do you do, are you for that? Do you think that there's a good argument for people getting married when they're younger? Do you think that people should naturally kind of let things play their course a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends, right? Because I think there's loads of factors there that are hidden too. Because I'd be curious to know exactly what the divorce rates are in, in the UK. So I've got it. Yeah, right. so, so for the US, it's 44% yeah. of people that get married get divorced. And for the UK, it's 40%, so slightly less. So, I mean, arguably, that's very close, right? Yeah, so even though I would say that the marriage age difference is quite steep, but the rate of divorce seems to be fairly similar. Yeah. So, you know, what that would say to me is that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're that better off getting married at a later age. Yeah. And I would argue, you know, this is just a complete, uh, complete hypothetical hypothesis, but... I think in the UK, people get married later because they work in London and I think they, everyone takes that natural step of, you know, they go for dating and they get a serious relationship, you know, they move in together, they get married, yeah. they buy a house and then they have kids. I think that you can do that at a lot earlier stage in America 100%. than you can in the UK because, 
and I think that's right as well. You should have that level of commitment before, you know. It's a natural progression. It's a natural progression. Have that level of commitment, then move into building a family and stuff. And getting a house in the UK at 25 years old or 26 years old, I mean, especially if you work in London, I mean, that's near on impossible, isn't it? I mean, this is not something that's going to happen that quickly, because where it can here in, in America. Yeah, I think one like even from a moving in perspective, right? In, in America, it's such a huge leasing. Um, leasing culture of people that lease apartments year on year and I've done it before um, more than once and I'm sure, sure you have is when you're with someone and you end up spending three or four days a week with them it gets to a stage where they're spending so much time at yours or you're spending so much time on theirs respectively at theirs respectively that when you come to a lease end of a lease agreement it kind of makes sense to, to cut your bills down and, and move in right and that's kind of a circumstantial factor of, of your relationship and equally you want to move in at the right time but equally it makes sense if you're you know spending a lot more time at their place than, than at your place and I do think that is uh, that is something that doesn't happen in the UK as much and it's something that kind of does expedite relationships in the US as well and rent increases in the US as well yeah. most people in the UK they don't know that I mean like in the UK if you're a good tenant you wouldn't expect your rent to, to go up but yeah. in, in the US it does doesn't it you get to yeah, the end of your lease and they know that you don't want to go through the ag of moving, so they just whack on an extra 10% for exactly. good measure. Literally every year. Um, yeah. And they're at 90% capacity, so if you leave, they don't really care either. So, 100%, yeah. You know, I think they kind of, yeah, there's a, a good reason for moving in. But I'd say that living together is really, um, until you live together, you don't know what it's like to be with that person yeah. fully, do you? No, I mean, course, like, yeah. you find out so much about your partner when you live with them versus if you're just dating them. I yeah, mean, it's agreed. a completely different thing. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and on that note, what happens? So, so you and I are married. I, I, let, let me start off by telling my story because I think it's relevant to the the, the 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 next progression of the conversation. So, I was obviously on a working visa. Um, so, how that works for in you know layman's terms is, you come over here, you sign a, a visa or you agree to a contract visa with a company. That means you can only work for that specific company whilst you're in the US I quit my job because for whatever reason um, that that position had run its course and I wanted to change I accepted a new position to try and um, so so with that I had to go back to the UK and get a new visa at the time me and Chelsea were engaged Covid hit the travel ban was actually implemented the day I quit my job Um, so subsequently meant that I was um, I couldn't leave the country and they wasn't issuing any visas of global, um, the global, um, what they call it, embassy, the US embassies globally had had shut down. So I was then in a stage where I was, you know, engaged. I had long-term commitments. So I obviously have two dogs over here. I have a lot of financial commitments and I'm in a country where I actually had no legitimacy after 60 days, so I had to leave that country and with no ticket back into the US. Equally, the embassies were closed. I knew with COVID this wasn't going to happen. I don't even think they've started opening yet. So you're talking, I knew I was going to be out of the country for six plus months. We was in California paying over $3,000 a month on rent. That is not an ideal situation for, for any engagement, right? So, so for me and Chelsea, we sat down and considered our options and decided, well, look, you know, it, it was best. We were planning our wedding in London next year, but it was best to expedite that wedding and, and, and get married in San Diego, which he did. 
So currently, the situation with that is, as soon as you, you, you get married, you petition for a, a green card, and you have to go through a, an application process, which I'm currently in. Um, it's been submitted, so I'm just waiting for, hopefully, my, my EAD in, in the forthcoming months. Uh, but it definitely puts a lot of strain on the relationship, doesn't it? I, I want this to tie into working visas because when you're, you can only work for one company, I don't necessarily think, first of all, it's a healthy relationship for, for your you and your partner, that you have that volatility that at any point, if, if you get the sack or you know, the company goes under, that your life then is you know totally turned on its head. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... I come from a bit of a different perspective, really, because, you know, firstly, I didn't really need to get married to get a green card, essentially. I mean, my mum's a US citizen, so is my sister, so I could have got sponsorship to get a green card, regardless of getting married. Yeah. Um, it might have taken slightly longer, but I didn't necessarily, you know, need to rush anything. You, you didn't have the visa issues that I was in. didn't have any visa issues, yeah. So... It was kind of a bit more traditional in the sense that so I met my wife, Kaylin, dated, moved in together, um, progressed on to marriage. But when it comes to the visa side of things, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around this as well. It's actually quite easy to get an e-visa, isn't it? Agreed, yeah. It's actually not that difficult. I think a lot of people, you know, they think, oh, getting a visa to come to the US has got to be quite hard. Or mm. a lot of Americans might, you know, might think, oh, you know, it's... I, I don't know what they think. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's not, if you're with a company, the e-visa is an investor's treaty visa, meaning that if you're a foreign country part of, and there's quite a few different countries that are part of the e-visa program, if you're investing over $400,000 in the US, you can petition for an e-visa. So I know a lot of British people are like, oh, how do I get over to America, whatever else. I mean, if you're with a company like that, then it's fairly easy to get an e-visa. It's beneficial if you're in a just to caveat that, if you're in a profession that's needed, right? So recruitment for us is a a fair a lot of English people you meet in the US are, are in the recruitment industry as a whole, right? And and are doing e visas. So if you're if you have a skill set that's desirable, obviously with recruitment you are getting Americans jobs. So it is desirable, it's something that grows the economy, it's something that's that's very transferable from England to here. Yeah. Sorry, just a, yeah, no, that's a fair point. But I think it is uh, I think it's good for the company. They like it obviously because you you're kind of stuck with them, really. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you can't really go anywhere necessarily unless you find another company that also would provide an e-visa to you and then yeah. get that replaced. So, I mean, it's beneficial for them. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because I, I'm thankful for the company to, for, for yes. going through that to get me an yeah. e-visa to come here initially. As an initial events fund, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have to pay money for it. I mean, it... Yeah, I think, it's, like, I think it's like a quarter of a million... I think, I think they have to show investment of a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. I think, yeah. and I think like, it costs a lot. few grand. I mean, uh, you know, it's the about five grand, stuff, yeah. About five grand, you have to invest in someone to come over. Mm-hmm. So for a company to hire you on the basis that they're going to send you straight over here, yeah. that's a fairly substantial investment. So, you know, you are very committed to them. And then obviously, you know, the difficulty is, is that if you're young and single, it's fine, right? Because if it doesn't work out with your company or yeah. something goes wrong, it, like you said, it's not necessarily the company's fault. It could be COVID's come along yeah. and people have been made redundant you know, all of a sudden you have to go back to the UK or yeah. you have to try and find another company with an e-visa, which isn't a big deal if you're single. Where that gets more complicated is when you're in a relationship, right? 100%. So I'm yeah. sure, I mean, in your situation, if you yeah. weren't in a serious relationship, you probably just would have gone back to the UK. Yeah, 100%. I definitely would have, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think there's a lot of considerations, right? Because first of all, like I said, I came over here with the idea that I wasn't going to settle down. If you're over a few years, the likelihood is in, in anything, you, you, you're going to meet someone, you're going to get attached. And then obviously your, your motives and, and, and you know what, what your plan is over the next few years changes a lot, which mine totally did, right? So, so it turned on its head, I met Chelsea, we got engaged, we was planning a wedding for the next year in London. Um, and, and then obviously COVID happened, who, who on earth could have ever predicted all, all, all this stuff happening? So from a logical perspective, it, it made sense to secure at least my options, right? Because one thing I have felt over the last few years, and I'm, I was you know, gainfully employed by two companies on two different visas, and you know, although for the most part I was I was happy until I left that then job, there is always a certain amount of vulnerability that you always have when you do sign up for car leases, when you do sign up for a year lease agreement, because if anything is to happen with with your employer, and that could be something totally out of your control, or it could be something that you just don't like, and sometimes you know you made a wrong choice to join a company or, or whatever. All of a sudden, you're in a position where you do feel that you're, you know, they've got you by the short and curly for, for want of a different expression. This is something that I've heard senior leaders in recruitment business say, oh, we've got them attached. Yeah, don't worry, we've got them by visa. We don't have to worry about it. We can pay, you know, locals more because they're not going to leave us. And it's more than they get in the UK. And I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a healthy employee-employer relationship because you want people to work with you that want to work with you, right? To yeah. want that you don't want people to work with you because that they don't have any options. So it's definitely stressful and that's something that me and Kayan always, you know, talked about as well, you know, throughout when we were living together and stuff like that, when everyone went back to the UK or changing visas to, you know, my, my current company. There is that uncertainty about it. There's that uncertainty in the sense that, you know, because I think people think, oh well, you know, if you're over here and you get let go, you just go back to the UK. Yeah. But the problem is, is that when people are out here on you know, five plus year visas, um, your life becomes ingrained. I don't have any life back in, in the UK. I don't have, I mean, I've got yep. my brother there. I don't have a house back there or don't even have a bank account back there. Yeah. You know, I'm completely, I've got, you know, we've got car um, financing, got yep. a mortgage out here, got three dogs. I think what people don't realise as well is that it affects both partners if yeah. something was to happen. So I've had yeah. many conversations with Kayla. It's like, you know, if something happened to my visa or something like that and I had to go back to the UK, it's not just hurting me in the sense that obviously I still have to pay those debts. I still yeah, have exactly. to pay that car payment and my mortgage and everything else. It also hurts Kayla because most of the time, especially when you're in a relationship, you move into a place together. I mean, our first place together was a townhouse. Uh, we both earn good money, but mm. if she had to take all of that responsibility by herself as far as rent, car yeah. payments and everything else, she yeah. wouldn't be able to do it if exactly. I lost my job through like you know, COVID or whatever else. And and then I'd have to go back to the UK and, and it would hurt her. She would have three dogs. Like what's yeah. she gonna do? She's gonna take the dogs to the pound and exactly. you know, it causes loads of drama on both sides. It kind of breaks up a you know a, a family unit. Um, and then you've got to have that conversation of would you come to the UK and so I'd be fine with that I wouldn't mind um, we discussed that Kayla coming and, and living in the UK I'd say I wouldn't I prefer over here my family's in the US so yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, want to go yeah, to the yeah. UK it doesn't make any sense Yeah. but we, we had that conversation like hey look if you know my visa didn't get approved or something like that 
Yeah. Um, you know, we just have to come and live in the UK. But just me, it just means it's a big uproot. It's a lot to ask. Hundred percent. And I think it's just a commitment, right? When you sign leases and stuff like that, you go into financial obligation as, as a pet, right? And that and that your your goals and your focus become very much mutual. And when you get put in a situation where that could be taken away from you, and, and you know, maybe through thought of your own, maybe not, maybe through company changes and stuff like that, it, it's definitely a level of vulnerability that you have being an expat and being tied to 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 any given so one of the working visas. You can't even do anything, can you? Like with COVID Literally. happened, it's not like you can go right. We need some extra money. I'm going to go do Ubering or something like that. Getting part time job. You can't yeah. do anything. Even, you are completely stuck. Even though I've paid taxes in this country for six years, I don't even now. I can't even file for unemployment. Can't even do anything because I was due to start a new job, and and obviously I, I couldn't. Now I'm in limbo somewhat. You're literally at at, that, at at the mercy of them. So I think what marriage does, and I don't want to take to seem like being, you know, unromantic in in this, but I think what marriage does is offer you solidarity as a couple, right? That whatever your freedom is or whatever focus you want to be, what where your focus wants to be over the next few years, that you have the freedom to do so, right? So. Um, with that being said, I wanted to speak a little bit about, um, oh yeah, so um, I, I think you touched upon it a minute ago, but I think that when people hear about people getting married, and I think this is why I wanted to have a conversation about it, when people hear about people getting married that are on a working visa, I think they all, they see 90 Day Fiancé and they have this image that we're from this like you know warm torn country and we just can't wait to get into America and we're just gonna hook up with the first American girl that comes along and 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 you know that's a ticket to the land of the free but it's not that at all right I think first of all you know I'm from London one of the greatest cities in the world that is not a slum to go back to there in, in any in any case um, but there is a, a an obligation that that you have um, to your partner and, and, and I think getting married does give you that freedom what's your thoughts on that? Yeah so I, I agree I really hate that misconception that and you definitely get that from people where it's like oh yeah you've come over here and you just you know you want to get a green card or stay here wherever and whenever you watch 90 Day Fiance it, it doesn't help <laughs> it doesn't help counter <laughs> that uh, stigma does it? Obviously, they're picking people that are, you know, sham marriages anyway for entertainment purposes. Yeah. <laughs> they're, you know, they're not looking at the 90% of actual legit marriages and 90% of people that are actually coming across it. I think, like you said, it's hard to talk from anyone else's perspective from yeah. different countries and from different economic statuses. But coming from the UK, we come from a highly advanced place I'd argue sometimes more advanced than America <laughs> then, areas, yeah. you know we come over here and they're like oh look you got a chip and pin card it's just come out I'm like we've had that for 20 years I know, and that's what we've oh here's fiber optic it's just come out it's like, no, we've had fiber optic for about 15 years in the UK this isn't new yeah <laughs> you know again not knocking the US yeah exactly yeah, American bashing again it's John. a bigger country so it takes longer to roll things out we get it um, but we're not coming from like a you know third world country deprived state so that whole kind of misconception of us wanting to stay over here and get a green card because you know we want to be in America. Obviously, we want to be in America. That's why we're here. Yeah, exactly. We like it, but it's not like we've come from somewhere. We're not escaping horrible. something. And that yeah. does annoy me when people give you that stigma, doesn't it? It's kind of like, oh, you, you just yeah. want to come and live in America. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I know someone that was in a similar situation to us and got married. Um, and then, 
like a, a local American guy was, was really frustrated at that and it kind of held it against him in, in future, you know, future meetings. And I just thought, well, you, you know, first of all, America's, for the most part, there's a huge amount of space, right? It, it, our people, I'm always of the, of the mindset, if someone's coming and bringing something to the economy, you know, we work in recruitment, so we're, we, we're giving Americans jobs. As long as they're a, like, honourable member of society, why would you have obligations for it? I mean, look how much fucking space is in Texas. You yeah. can drive 10 hours and there's nothing. You can drive 10 hours west and there's nothing for miles and miles. It's not like... It's like they're, they're, they're totally crammed in. So yeah, it's always... Uh, I think we're on. different as well in the sense that we moved over here to work over here yeah. uh, originally. So we were here already working. We already had visas. We didn't come to the US to get married on a green card. And, you know, it's not like we're married to 50-year-old women or, and, you know, like <laughs> yeah, there's a massive age also. gap or, you yeah. know, there's, there's something that's, you know, weird going on there. Uh, both our partners are around the same age and you know, same kind of you know socioeconomic background it's like it's not there's not some weird thing going on <laughs> where it looks like oh you're here for a green card but I think the fact that we've worked here originally I mean we both e-visas are five year visas and yeah. you can get them constantly renewed so, exactly yeah. I mean I could stay I here indefinitely just 10 on years, the e-visas yeah, yeah. yeah and exactly. like I said I could get a green card through, through family anyway so it's, there's no real reason to no there's no real benefit yeah we're not coming it's not like you're coming to the US purely to, to get a green card yeah exactly my situation was a little bit different because circumstances expedited my marriage but again it was something that inevitably was going to happen and, and, and it made sense so now and to be honest who the fuck can predict what's going on with with, with what's gone on with COVID and how that's going to affect anything in, in the immediate future right yeah. for us it was a way to secure our current status and, and, and give us a few more options um, on the subject of uh, COVID, I think I, w- I want to touch on it a little bit. I don't want to get into the weeds too much because it, it's a very divisive subject. But it has affected me fairly badly in the sense that, you know, it has been some of the most stressful months of my life. I was living in California. I quit my job. I, start to, I was set to start a new job. COVID hit. I couldn't leave the country. Then had to negate. How the fuck I was going to stay here in, in, in the interim. Equally, I can't work until I now get my AD. So we're eating through thousands and thousands of savings. Been at home. Definitely had some, some ups and downs. And sometimes to my headspace about it. What, as a whole, are your thoughts on, on, on the whole COVID situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's a tough one, isn't it? Obviously, it's, uh, we work in recruitment. Recruitment relies on people hiring people. People generally don't like to hire people during pandemics, <laughs> so it's uh, obviously it impacts recruitment as a whole. I work in IT recruitment, so not quite as bad because a lot of the developers work remote anyway. People yeah. still need software, um, so it hasn't really you know impacted me as much. I think obviously from a society standpoint, I think everyone being stuck in their houses, you know, everyone being um, you know just confined really. And uh, going through the whole pandemic, I think a lot of people are going crazy. I think a lot yeah. of people want the Suicides same headspace that they yeah. were before. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And it, you hear mixed views on it all the time in that, oh, it's really bad, it's going to kill thousands of people. And you look at the death statistics and it's like, well, it actually doesn't seem that bad at all. Yeah. You know, death rates are, you know, the average age is below the age of death anyway. It's like... yeah. 
Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's hard, right? Because I think in these situations, it's very hard to not to think totally objectively, right? And because everyone's situation is very different. For example, I know a couple, good friends of mine, that both work from home. I know he's wanted to work from home for a while, and it's gave him a lot more freedom to do what he does. His work's actually busier than it is normally. So he's earning well, she's earning well, he's getting a life that he wanted. So from his perspective, he's very much, everything needs to remain locked down. And it's hard to totally not see the, 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 the stuff that is going on economically as a consequence of you know, things remaining shut down. I went to um, Medina restaurant, shout out to Medina and Victory Park, if anyone's in the Dallas area, it's a great Moroccan restaurant. And I was speaking to them, and they were saying that they've got two government loans. This is a very successful business. You know, if you look at look on Yelp, it's got 4.5 stars and thousands of reviews, but it's a small local business. And they were saying that you know, they, they've had to get a few government loans. They're really struggling to st- st- stay open. The riots really, really done a lot of damage to their to, to, to their business because they can open, and financially they're in a really bad position. I think the reality that businesses don't have a huge amount of over overhead. Oh, sorry, the business don't have a huge amount in the bank to support their overhead, um, is is a factor that does have to be taken into consideration. It's, it's very weird in the sense that I think people either say, well. We have uh, no one's saying we want businesses to reopen at, at the cost of people dying, right? I think everyone's in agreement with that. If you if you're at high risk, especially if you're older, you need to make sure, and we need to do everything we can as a community to make sure that they're safety and they're looked after and they're doing okay. But we, people that have worked 20, 30 years and put their life savings into businesses, and as you see them go down the drain, it's hard to say that we just have to keep letting this happen either and there's obviously a middle ground somewhere but it's it's very very hazy line and whatever you say seems to be either taken offensive or or the wrong and depends on which party you're at yeah yeah I mean I agree I think it shouldn't be at the uh, I think initially I understood it because you know whenever you've got any kind of pandemic like this you don't know how bad it's going to be what the mortality rate's going to be so I think it's fair enough that they're like, right, okay, let's be cautious about this. We don't know what it's going to do. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. You know, it could be, you know, like bird flu back in the, was it 1919, uh, the Spanish influenza. Sorry, it's too sad. I'm bringing it Spanish influenza, yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, if you don't know how bad something's going to be, and it could turn out to be like Spanish influenza, kill loads of millions, 
tens of millions of people, you've got to be cautious to begin with. Yeah. So I think it's not bad that they went on lockdown straight away, reacted fairly quickly. And I think they did react fairly quickly. I mean, they reacted in the same speed as everyone else did. Yeah. So, I mean, can you react quicker? Of course you can. Like, in <laughs> you hindsight, yeah. In hindsight, you could do it, you know, off the first case in Wuhan. But in reality, most countries acted about the same time in yeah. Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So... They, they reacted, fair enough. And then it goes into, right, data collection. Let's see what the data says. Because the data is is what dictates everything, right? Yeah. Um, so you've got to give time for, to get accurate data. So I kind of get it. Now I'm of the opinion now there's enough data out there. I think we've seen enough to where, you know, if you're at high risk, then stay at home. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone should be forced to go out or forced to go into work or yeah. forced to do anything like that. If you're at high risk or you're in... Um, close proximity to someone's high risk, I think you definitely should stay away just because, yeah. to be on the safe side. But if you're not, like, I don't think it should be holding back the economy. I don't think the economy should take a downfall because of it. Yeah. Because you've got to reference it to other stuff. It's like if, if it's the same mortality rate as road traffic accidents or yeah. something like that. It's like no one's saying don't drive your car. Yeah. You know, like you, you've got to have, a, there's a level, a level of comparison risk. there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think as a whole, from... The, it's very hard to get totally objective opinions on this, but as a whole, it, it, they predicted it was going to be a lot more deadly than it is, all right? Looking at it now, from from what I've read, and again, my sources can be could be a load of bollocks, who, who knows, but it's, it's, it seems nowhere near as deadly and about three or four times as deadly as the flu, is, is what, what I'm hearing, roughly. So, on that basis... I don't think that everything should continue to stop. I think there should be a level where you say, old people, unhealthy people, anyone that's not willing to take the risk, we're going to support you. You need to stay at home and you need some lockdown, continuing quarantine. We're going to make sure your house doesn't go under. We're going to make sure you get far fit unemployment. But the vast majority of young, healthy people that are willing to take that risk should be allowed to do so as long as they do it responsibly. Like, right, make sure you wear a mask, keep social distancing, don't, don't go around partying with 50 people, stuff like that. Don't be, you know, d- doing whatever. I think there's a level of risk that that people take in anything, right? If you take, if you if you ride a mo- motorbike, probably five times more likely to die than if you drive a car. Does that mean you shouldn't drive a motorbike? No, you, you take on that risk yourself. Exactly. As long as that isn't affecting other people. So it's a, it's the a, shaming side of things, I think, is really bad as well. I think that's something that... Uh, now, I don't know if that's happening in the UK as well as it is here. There's that whole shaming thing. I'm not talking about the masks. I think just should wear a mask. It doesn't yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wear a mask. Yeah, and mask you know? is, yeah, but, yeah. That, that, that's fine. I think everyone should wear a mask. It's not a big deal to wear a mask. And if it does help, even if it's 1% help, then yeah. fair enough, wear it. It's a but small cost to pay. Yeah. Exactly. But those people are like, oh, no, you shouldn't be going out. You should be doing this. Or, you know, they judge you for having two or three close friends around or something like that to your house. But then, you know, they're going out shopping and they're in Walmart every week where yeah. millions of people are crammed together, touching yeah, exactly. items and putting them back. It's like, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I saw that meme the other day of a guy hiding behind a tree and he's like, you know, COVID waiting for you to go to the bar, but doesn't care if you go to Walmart. <laughs> it's true. It's like, if you're going to catch it anywhere, it's going to probably be at like probably a, supermarket a supermarket or grocery or store. Yeah. Like How many that. people are not buying groceries, still not buying groceries online yeah. when you could, if you really wanted to mitigate. Exactly. With people taking the high ground, it's like, fair enough if you want to be on your high horse and be like, okay, well you shouldn't go out, it's spreading it. 
But then if that's the case, you shouldn't be going out to Walmart. Oh, you shouldn't be going out to stores. You should be ordering everything online in-house mm-hmm. um, and, and not seeing anyone. And I, I think that the most people that are on their high horses aren't doing that. <laughs> I think they are still going out to Walmart and to shops and stuff like that. So Yeah, I, I don't like the shaming thing. I think, look, most people are in agreement, right? You can't, you can't just keep letting their cut. Nothing get up and running there's, there's not an unlimited pot of money that the government can keep paying for unemployment that can keep paying for these subs- subsidizations at some point these government loans and small business loans and stuff like that at some point if there's no money we're going to crash and things are going to get a lot worse and most people understand there's a level between making sure people are safe and making sure the economy doesn't totally crash it's just about finding that balance and it seems like any way you say um, uh, conflicts an opinion to, to someone and people kind of put you in either box and actually yeah. there's there's a middle ground for, for most things. Yeah, they definitely do and I, I think that's that's the wrong way to look at it. You always see those ones where it's like, well, if you meet someone and you're at a party and, and then you know you spread it to someone who then spreads it to their... Yeah, I don't know. Like that that it's like, well, that person who's engaging with their elderly parents maybe should have been at the party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's exactly the analogy I, I saw. And quite a few people shared it as well, which was a little bit surprised at, but it was like... Sue goes to her party with 20 friends. One of her friends passes COVID to Sue. Sue then goes to her 85-year-old. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, it stops there. Because if you've got an 85-year-old grand that you you, you frequently um, visit, don't fucking go see him. Surely there's a little bit of common sense there. Don't go and, don't go and see someone or at least keep a distance or through a window or whatever you can to make sure that person does it. You have to be held, held accountable. Equally, I don't have my parents close but my parents are you know my dad's nearly 70 my parents uh, are, are um, uh, over at my mum's you know 65 or coming up to coming up to that so if I was seeing them frequently of course I'd make decisions based more upon that but you have to let people take the, the decisions that they're, they're, they're willing to make within reason you know? exactly and you and Chelsea actually do this anyway don't you when you go and see Chelsea's parents yeah they're, you know, we quarantine like, for you quarantine yeah. yeah you don't go out you, you wait for a couple of weeks and and you make sure that you're okay. I've not seen my mum for since this whole thing started as well. So, yeah, yeah I think common sense approach there is is the key, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, look, I appreciate it, John. Um, I think that should wrap it up. Any other f- things you'd like to cover? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we're pretty good to go. Thanks for having me again. No, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You take care. All right, cheers.